one benefit of finding the most intelligent civilization in the Milky Way because we can ask them questions. My first question would be, what was there before the Big Bang? The second question is, where is the nearest interstellar bar where extraterrestrials come together and have conversations? We know from our personal experience that finding a partner gives a meaning to your existence. So if we ever find a partner out there, it could give a meaning to our existence. The universe will not appear to be pointless anymore. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Avi, we've seen uh, you know tremendous interest in your book, and that's been phenomenal. And I wonder what the reaction to the book has been uh, since we last spoke back in, uh, I guess it was September, late August. And I want to get uh, your take on just the, the popular reaction to your second book after Funk coming as it did on the heels of your phenomenal uh, runaway smash hit bestseller, Extraterrestrial. So tell us, please, Avi, how has been the reaction both uh, in critical circles and in the consumer circles? And then we'll move on to, uh, to some, some matters that are pressing because they involve a critique as is natural in science to get a critique. Maybe not the way it was done, but we'll get into that. So please tell us, Avi, how right. has been the reaction to the new book? The first book, Extraterrestrial, became a bestseller in many countries, 28 editions, 25 languages. Uh, and that attracted a lot of uh, attention. I had uh, of the order of uh, actually more than uh, 3,000 interviews as a result of that. Just over the past couple of months, there were three profiles uh, one in uh, the New York Times Magazine, another one in uh, The Telegraph, and uh, the last one was in The Guardian. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is a lot of attention. Uh, there is a documentary being prepared um, about my research by Netflix, and they have been filming for uh, more than a year. And, in fact, they were following me when I went to the Swiss Alps uh, uh, last week, and uh, uh, they carried the camera all the way up, and that was uh, quite tedious for them. Uh, and then they went with me to Washington, D.C. as well, um, just yesterday. Uh, so they, are, they, they keep following me. There are lots of interesting things happening. And um, you would see them, hopefully, when it comes, the documentary comes out, uh, hopefully, in 2025. Um, lots of things. Uh, then, uh, as I mentioned, there is a play um, that uh, was presented at my home uh, about the research. Uh, it includes a song that was composed by Alan Bergman, who won many awards and uh, uh, wrote uh, Yentl for um, uh, Barbara Streisand. And, uh, and then, uh, in addition, there is a sculpture being made about, inspired by my research uh, by an artist in uh, Spain. And so uh, lots of things are happening. Um, you know, it very often happens that I go places and uh, someone comes to me and asks for a selfie, which is something I'm not used to. Uh, it happened even on uh, uh, Richard Branson's uh, Necker Island when I was there as the entertainer of a group of 40 people with uh, a net worth, each of them a net worth above uh, $400 million. And one of them came to me and said, so Can you I were on the high side of that. You were on the higher side of that. Oh, you, I'm, you, brought I'm the average up. you brought it up I'm, a little bit. No, I'm at zero uh, in that scale. Uh, but uh, uh, one of them came and said, can I have a, a video selfie with you? And I'll send it to my boss. And uh, he never replies, but let's see what happens. And within minutes, the boss replied and said, uh, you know, I can't believe that you are with Avi Love on this island. I follow his uh, work all the time. And, you know, I went to buy an Apple Watch at the store just after a few minutes. That was the first time I went after the pandemic. And someone came to me and said, are you Avi Love? And so anyway, people do recognize and it, it had impact on, and, and that's part of what uh, the mission that I, I have, aside from practicing science, which I should say is extremely important. You have to practice science in, in order to know what to advocate. There are many science popularizers who do not practice science and they are just like commentators looking at a soccer match and telling the players how to pass the ball, okay? And uh, how dare they? if they are not uh, playing soccer. So my point is that uh, aside from practicing science, I, I enjoy communicating to the public because, you know, it, it, it uh, inspires young people uh, uh, how exciting science could be. And it shows that science should be driven by evidence. And we can talk more about it. But uh, this was a result of the first book, Extraterrestrial, my 
uh, new book, uh, Interstellar, came uh, just a few months ago. And um, just to mention two tidbits from it, um, one I call the Hawking Limit. Uh, and that is, you know, Stephen Hawking was at, uh, at my home uh, back in 2016 for Passover dinner, and he could hardly move a muscle. muscle. You know, he's, yeah. he could only move his eyebrows, but nevertheless, he had a machine that could translate that into words. And uh, you could still see the human side of Stephen Hawking at one of the events. He said, I'm bored. Uh, uh, could we have, uh, could we go to the hotel bar and uh, have some fun? And he had an affair with his caretaker, uh, you know, some years before that. So right. he was definitely human, uh, but he couldn't really use uh, at will his physical body. So that's the limit that um, artificial intelligence works at right now without robots, you know, uh, chat GPT or anything more futuristic uh, could potentially imitate mental states of humans. And so I call that the Hawking limit where it's not associated with any physical uh, motion, but actually just the mental states uh, are human-like. Okay, so that's an interesting uh, limit where AI systems will be quite um, important in society because you can develop a relationship with them. They would appear just like a human except for the physical aspect. Uh, and then, and, and of course, for interstellar travel, that's extremely uh, important for any probe to be uh, to have a brain, an artificial brain, so that the, the probe can decide for itself how to respond to circumstances because the time it takes uh, signals to travel to the sender um, is simply too long. Even for light, it takes thousands of years across the Milky Way galaxy. So uh, that AI uh, uh, brain is really essential for interstellar travel. The other thing I mentioned in the book is uh, classifying civilizations and um, to me a, a mark of intelligence is the ability to um, recreate your environment so the most i mean we are uh, polluting our planet we are sort of like these tourists that arrive at a national park and throw bottles everywhere you know like we don't care so much about our environment as of now maybe now we will stop but uh the most intelligent way is to actually recreate the environment. So for example, uh, create life in the laboratory. Uh, and we are in principle, a scientific civilization can do that. Uh, or even better, create a baby universe if you understand how to uh, use uh, quantum gravity uh, in the lab. And it's possible that the Big Bang uh, uh, came to exist that way. But uh, that's a, one benefit of finding the most intelligent civilization in the Milky Way because we can learn if these things are possible. We can ask them questions. My first question would be, what was there before the Big Bang? Okay, that would be my, because it will teach us about quantum gravity. It will teach us about our cosmic roots. Uh, if they know the answer, that would be wonderful. The second question is, uh, where is the nearest uh, interstellar bar where, you know, extraterrestrials come together and have conversations? I, you know. Because uh, uh, Steven Weinberg, the Nobel laureate, uh, in his book, uh, The First Three Minutes, he argued at the end that the more the universe is comprehensible, the, uh, the more pointless it looks. And the reason I think it looked pointless to Steven Weinberg is because he focused on elementary particles, on things that have no life to them. Uh, and uh, we know from our personal experience that finding a partner gives a meaning to your existence. So uh, if we ever find a partner out there on an exoplanet or uh, in between stars, uh, it could give a meaning to our existence. The universe will not appear to be pointless anymore. Uh, and uh, you know, we could learn from that partner. And you know, this is my romantic version or reason uh, to find the partner. I do think that it will help us. Yeah, I think the existential loneliness and the uh, aspects of of uh, feeling like we lack free will and, and uh, also the ultimate questions. This is what makes us humans. And I, I want to point out to my <clears throat> to my viewers and actually to my channel members at YouTube 
you can watch a video. I made a video about you, Avi, uh, not about your uh, research, but your uh, work with uh, Vagozi, I believe it was, on uh, falsifying inflation using the cosmic graviton background. That comes out tomorrow morning, uh, unless you are a channel member, uh, which I love and appreciate. We've got dozens and dozens of them. And um, then you can watch it basically now. That, so, that's yeah, great. That. I'll, I'll let you know. Thank you so that. much. I should tell you that um, I have a follow-up paper I'm working on right now. And so you have a little scoop here. That, oh, wow. Uh, if, um, I mean, we tend to assume that the universe was always the same in all directions, that it was expanding the same rate. And that's called the isotropy, that the universe was always isotropic. But if you allow a small level of um, uh, anisotropy, of uh, the universe expanding in one direction a little uh, faster than in, in the other direction, turns out that uh, early on, the difference uh, was larger, actually. And we just found the solutions for that. And what happens is along one axis, the short axis, you can actually get to a singularity before the other. So the other axis can actually expand at the time that the short axis collapses. Uh, they can mm -hmm. bounce. And um, so you can get a graviton background with different properties than you expect in an isotropic universe. And uh, so, the, you know, that's the fun of doing uh, uh, science that you never know what you might uh, discover tomorrow. And actually, the reason I went to Washington, D.C. is because uh, I had an insight about something that could be useful to people over there. Uh, but that's completely, oh, wow. uh, completely unrelated. It's related to gravity, but not to uh, anything we discussed so far. Uh, we need to get into uh, the, the meat of the subject matter today, which has to do with the claimed, I will call it the back reaction to the discovery of spherules of a likely extrasolar composition in the Pacific Ocean site of the CNAS 2014 bolide. So first of all, let's give a quick recap because I know you've got a limited amount of time. I want to be respectful. Uh, we have a lot to cover. Uh, can you summarize uh, the steps, if you will, that led you to believe that the bolide discovered and uh, with samples collected from Papua New Guinea, that that was likely to be of extrasolar origin? Right, so this was um, the fireball from uh, the object that was roughly the size of a watermelon, was observed by US government satellites on January 8th, 2014, almost uh, a decade ago. And uh, for five years, nobody paid attention, but we calculated that the speed of this object was so high that it was unbound to the sun. So it came from interstellar space, and moreover, it was moving faster than 95% of the stars near the sun. Uh, at uh, 60 kilometers per second. So that gave us uh, the inspiration to um, go out there to the Pacific Ocean and look for the materials of this object. So I led an expedition. And by the way, it took a year of very hard work to plan it, to receive the funding at one and a half million dollars, to have the best engineers and uh, navigators involved. Uh, and eventually to design the machinery, the tools to collect any molten droplets from the surface of the object when it exploded uh, as a result of its friction on air, when it produced this fireball, which carried about uh, a few percent of the Hiroshima atomic bomb energy. Um, and so uh, we were looking for millimeter-sized particles, the size of a grain of sand, uh, at the bottom of the ocean, which was roughly a mile deep at that location, uh, about um, 60 miles from uh, Papua New Guinea. And, um, um, and the, the region that the Department of Defense uh, defined for the location of the fireball was um, about seven miles large. So just think about it, searching across such a huge volume of water and looking for millimeter-sized particles. It sounds hopeless. A lot of people said you will not find anything. Nevertheless, we went there. Uh, and then we ended up finding those molten droplets, most of which our background, okay, background particles that are not related to the meteor, but we found an enhancement uh, along the meteor path. So we made the map and indeed found an excess of spherules. And moreover, in that region where the excess was, we found a composition of elements from the periodic table that is distinct, that was never reported in the literature. 
Uh, it has rare elements enhanced by factors of hundreds relative to the standard solar composition. And we had to give it a name because nobody in the literature described that before. And we called it Belau composition uh, because uh, beryllium, lanthanum, and uranium are enhanced. Uranium by a factor of almost a thousand relative to the standard solar composition. Now you ask, okay, so what does it mean? Uh, we couldn't match it to rocks on Earth. Um, we couldn't match it to rocks on Mars or um, on the moon or asteroids. And we argued this implies that it may be extrasolar in origin, completely independently of the evidence about the meteor speed being unbound. Um, and um, the question then is, what is the origin of this object? And in fact, I wrote a scientific paper that was submitted for publication that suggests a natural origin that uh, has to do with a magma ocean planet, a planet where the uh, rock was molten. Actually, the Earth uh, was in that state early on when it was bombarded by heavy collisions. And uh, the moon was made out of one of these collisions. And, um, and um, just imagine another planet with molten rock, then some elements are a sink to the core of the planet, which is usually iron, because they have affinity to iron, leaving behind other elements. And those elements left behind are in the crust of the planet. And that's those are the elements we found enhanced in the Belau composition. So the suggestion was maybe it's a, uh, it originated from some exoplanet that had molten rock um, all across uh, the, the volume of the planet. But then the question is, how do you kick it out of that planetary system at, at a speed that is faster than the speed of stars, the typical speed of stars? And we came up with a very interesting possibility that, you know, the Earth, uh, when uh, the, the Earth, uh, when it's closed, uh, well, we have the moon around it. Uh, so the moon raises tides in the oceans. Okay, we are all familiar with the tides. Uh, but if you were to replace the moon by the sun, just put the sun next to the earth. Obviously, the tides would be stronger, but not strong enough to destroy the earth by gravity, by the gravitational tide, because the density of the sun is lower than the density of rock. Okay, so it cannot destroy the earth. If the earth comes close to the sun, it will be swallowed once it enters the sun, but it will never be disrupted just by the force of gravity. However, the most common stars are 10 times lower in mass than the sun. They are called dwarf stars, and they are the most common, and they are 10 times smaller in size. So it ends, they end up being 100 times denser than the sun. And they can destroy the, uh, an Earth-like planet that comes close to them. They will shred it into, uh, we call it spaghettify the, the planet, make a spaghetti-like stream of rocks. And so, half of the mass of that planet will be ejected to interstellar space. We calculated the speed, and amazingly, it's 60 kilometers per second. So, so that could be an origin for this meteor, because you expect the highest velocity fragments to be kicked out at the highest speed uh, from the crust, from the outer layer of that planet. Of course, there could be also uh, uh, an artificial origin. We, we don't know for sure that it's natural. Uh, and you can imagine melting a computer screen or melting a semiconductor. And obviously, the abundance of rare elements will be quite different from that of common rocks. So to find out the origin, uh, we need to find bigger pieces of the meteor. And we are now starting to plan the next expedition to, to find those. Uh, the machinery that we will use will be bigger and more expensive, uh, but we are hoping to do that in 2024. And, um, you know, I'm always guided by evidence, and I always claim that it's a lot of hard work. You know, we spent two weeks in the Pacific Ocean. I didn't sleep much during, during those two weeks because we had 26 runs where we lifted, you know, a sled covered with magnets from the ocean floor. Uh, after it attracted the magnetic particles, these ferrules that we found, and we would scrape the magnets and put it back on the ocean floor. That was a lot of hard work. And the reason I bring this up is because a lot of the critics, first of all, they didn't do any hard work. They just expressed an opinion. You know, they don't have access to the spherules. 
they just say, oh, well, maybe it's coal ash. That was the most recent thing, argument. Maybe it's coal ash. Well, we checked. We have 60 elements, okay, from the periodic table that we analyzed. And I can tell you with confidence that it's not coal ash. The, the critics were, say, were looking at three elements out of the 60 and saying, oh, well, it looks not so far. But if you look at the 60, it's clearly not coal ash. We didn't find coal ash. We found real spherules from a meteor. And we can talk about why critics behave this way, which is really not professional. I mean, they attack on a personal level and so forth. But if I had to summarize it in one word, I would say it's jealousy. Hello, students of the impossible. It's Professor Brian Keating here with just a tiny little homework assignment to interrupt your podcast. And that's to make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast or following us on your podcast app of choice. Did some research and actually only about 50% of you are actually following or subscribing to the Into the Impossible podcast. And really mean a lot if you could subscribe and keep up to date with me with all the greatest content. I'm putting out tremendous amounts. Podcast has grown in popularity, but it can be better and bigger with your help. Do that, please do it now. Don't wait, you'll forget. If you're looking to really boost your position on the grade curve for some extra credit, make sure to leave a rating or review of the podcast. It really helps. Thanks a lot. Now back to the show. Jealousy. So when I look at the uh, paper, this is uh, we sh we should acknowledge again the mastodons in the room. Steve Desch, Alan Jackson. I'm happy to talk to them. You know, when when uh, you and I hang up, I'm I'm happy to talk to them anytime. They're always welcome uh, as long as they adhere to uh, the rules of decorum and. Don't make ad hominem attacks. Uh, but they uh, present a paper last month, I believe it was, which is called A Critique of Your Paper. I'm not going to read the whole title. Uh, but they go through 10 different uh, claims that would all have to be true in order for your claim to withhold scrutiny. So I want to go through those really quickly. And you tell me just agree or disagree. Um, so first one you agree with, I'm sure. The authors claim that the bolide was interstellar, moving too fast to have been bound in orbit, around the sun when it struck the earth. Agreed, right? right? Yeah, yes. You assert that the significant quantities of materials from the bolide would have survived inter uh, atmospheric entry to be deposited on the sea floor, mostly as millimeter-sized ablation spheroids. You already said that. Uh, you claim to know the position of where these spherules were deposited to within an area one kilometer by 10 kilometers long. Right. The authors claim that a statistically significant excess of spherules, twice as many, were collected along the assumed path compared to control regions. Agree? Right. Yeah. yeah. The authors measured iron isotope ratios in 11 spherules, including three Bellow spherules, and find them to lie along the terrestrial fragmentation line with errors of less than 1%, and show frag fractionations consistent with iron loss by vaporization during entry. Right. One of these spherules, S21, was found to be a compound sphere. Three spherules sp stuck together while molten. The authors present back of the envelope calculation consists this is also consistent with fireball formation. Right. Authors uh, measure the chemical enrichments of the Bellow and other elements uh, and they assert that this composition is not found in any terrestrial sample. And they claim Bellow is associated with the assumed path of the bolide absent from regions far from the path and therefore not associated with the fireball. The authors claim Bellow compositions would be uniquely consistent with formation in the magma ocean of a differentiated extrasolar planet. Now, I don't agree with this one, so be careful agreeing to this. Do you claim that they would be uniquely consistent with formation in a magma ocean? Or wasn't that just one hypothesis? That's one possibility, and that's why we need bigger pieces. Uh, I just wanted to um, give credit uh, in terms of some of those statements uh, you know, I've been working, part of our team uh, includes uh, uh, Dr. Roald Tagel. Uh, he's the uh, head of, he's leading the, the work at the, the Brucker Corporation in Berlin, Germany. For us, uh, yeah. he's using the best uh, X-ray mass, uh, X-ray uh, fluorescence uh, device that the world has to offer. And then uh, my colleague at Harvard, the Professor Stein Jacobson, who has uh, a group of postdocs working with him and uh, they're using uh, one of the best uh, mass spectrometers in the world um, uh, to, for the analysis. So uh, very often, you know, the critics are referring just to me, but 
I wanted to explicitly say that we are talking about multiple people contributing. A lot of it, actually, there are tens of people on the paper, and uh, they include also a, a collaboration with uh, the University of Technology in Papua New Guinea, uh, the head of the mining engineering uh, department there, Dr. Jim Lem, uh, is part of the analysis team. So there are lots of people involved. Mm -hmm. For some reason, these critics prefer to attack me. <laughs> but uh, mm -hmm. anyway, they know about these groups. I can, oh, wait, I, I just need to mention. Now, why, how do I know that they, because Steve Dash wrote emails, personal emails to Dr. Jim Lamb, after I mentioned him in one of my essays, to uh, Professor Stein Jacobson, trying to dissuade them from being part of this scientific research project. Hmm. And I ask you, how is that ethical? How is that part of, uh, um, how should I say, um, constructive scientific discourse? He was basically harassing my team members and telling them what you're doing is wrong, what you said is wrong, and you shouldn't do it. He was actively sending them emails. Now, they are senior people. But he also sent emails to junior people, student, my student, my postdoc. And he is a senior faculty sending intimidating students and postdocs. I just wanted to bring this up because mm -hmm. this is completely inappropriate and very aggressive behavior that has nothing to do with science. It's the question whether you should intimidate young scholars who are part of a research team examining materials to which you have no access, following a project that took months to prepare, two weeks to collect the materials, and then months to analyze yeah. the materials. This is a lot of work, and you attack them through direct emails to them, telling them not to do that. And I just wanted to bring this up because this is not in the public domain, but no, I can no, tell no. you, I have access to those emails and I just decided not to mud wrestle because I will get dirty if I mud wrestle. Right. There is this approach of the eagle, you know, that when there is a crow on the back of the eagle that pecks at its neck, the eagle doesn't fight the crow off. The eagle rises to greater heights where the oxygen level is low enough for the crow to drop off the back of the eagle. This is the approach that I'm trying to take basically doing the science to the best of my ability. You know, I may make mistakes, wrong inferences, but that's part of doing science. Yeah, And my point is, okay, you can disagree with me, but to attack young scholars personally through direct emails to them, threatening them and intimidating them, this is bullying and this is unacceptable, but this is being done by those critics that you just mentioned. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Well, again, I, I don't like hearing that. I mean, we all live under this fantasy that scientists are somehow exalted individuals with access to special wisdom just because we have special knowledge. But in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. I always say that scientists are like children. They have these wonderful qualities of curiosity, of imagination, right. of, of wanting to explore the world with wonder. But just like a child, they also are petty. They're jealous. They don't like other people's toys unless they get to have better toys. And in fact, they'll do nothing more to get pleasure sometimes than take down a rival. Now, I'm not calling uh, Dr. Dash, Professor Dash, a child. I am inviting him. I'm, th I'm throwing an invitation out there. If you would like to refute that, I follow him on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are open, uh, Professor. So you're welcome, and you'll get a fair hearing. Avi, you can attest to that. I've been, yeah. I've challenged you as a friend. Uh, I still push my back. point. The biggest damage that forget about the spherols. You know, that's not really important here because what he's doing is sending a message that you dare not deviate from the beaten path that he defines as the, as the dogma, 
because if you deviate, I will aggressively send you emails and tell you what I think and why you shouldn't do it, okay? And that is very damaging because the next time that the same postdoctoral student works on dark matter or works on the beginning of the universe, those, after going through a traumatic experience of this type where a senior person behaves this way, those young people will not dare anymore. They would worry about their job prospects. And that is very damaging for the nature of innovation in science. That's what bothers me. And it's, surprising. it's not so much the debate about these particular items. On one of uh, Steve Dash's most recent tweets, he posts uh, uh, a claim from uh, somebody else's post, but he retweeted a, a claim about Jesus and how Jesus uh, was uh, claimed that your love for God was measured by your love of your neighbor and even your enemy. So uh, I wonder if, if, if Professor Dash takes that advice to heart. Anyway, the invitation's open. I'll give him a fair hearing, and I will confront him with those as I've confronted you with things I disagreed with you about. And that's what friends do, and that's what science is all about. Anyway, getting back to his paper. So he says that none of these claims uh, withstand scrutiny, not any one of those 10 uh, that I mentioned. He got, the first thing he says is that the bolide probably wasn't interstellar. He says probably, which is kind of strange that He's claiming that this claims that proves that your claims are incorrect. He says uncertainties in the velocities of objects in the. I'm going to just put this up on the screen because it's. I know it's boring for people that are just listening, uh, but let me put this up on the screen. There it is. Okay, you might not be able to see this, Avi, but you've probably seen it before, so I'm not going to. Okay, the Ebolide probably wasn't zero. Uh, uncertainties in the velocities are not reported, but these can be estimated separately, and they are large. There's a greater than 0.1 percent probability that it's not interstellar, which sounds small, but a catalog of a thousand solar system bolides, the odds are high that one, okay, so that's just 0.1% uh, converted to one in a thousand, uh, appear to be interstellar velocities. And that appears to be that one, the one 2014. What do you have to say to that, that you miscalculated well, the uncertainties or you know, overestimated your answer? This is not me because uh, the data was collected by the US Space Command. That's the organization that gets paid, the, its annual budget is bigger than that of NASA. It's supposed to advise the US president about any ballistic missile that is heading from North Korea towards the US. And suppose they were wrong by a factor of three, as Steve Dash and colleagues argue in their velocity measurement. They would advise the president of Mexico about a missile heading to Washington DC. I would be really worried writing a scientific paper or posting this on the archive claiming the government doesn't really know what they're doing for a, a budget okay, of but, 10 but let, let me let me but just anyway, strengthen his point so, so let, let the me government has been known to make mistakes right <laughs> okay sure sure so that's exactly right so i asked them in 2019 if they can confirm the uncertainty in the data so they went back for three years analyzing the data and came back with a letter to nasa stating that they are confident that the 99.99 percent after looking back at the data that indeed this object was interstellar. So, you know, I don't, I, I have no ability to access classified data, but they went out of their way. You know, this is not their day job to help uh, the frontiers of science. They are supposed to protect the nation against the national security threats. Nevertheless, they took the time to do that, to write a letter to NASA. And, um, you know, all I can say is that uh, you know, when we analyze data in the scientific literature, we often have to trust the observers, the experimentalists that report about it. So they reported about it. They are a trustworthy uh, organization that uh, you know could have gone back to the data and looked at it. And it's not just the satellite data. And by the way, many of the critics say, oh, we are talking about ground-based data. No, it's not ground-based. It's also satellite data. And the, they combine multiple sensors. We don't have access to it because many of the sensors are classified. But they went back, checked it, and confirmed this is an interstellar object. That's my answer. And it just seems like it could be uh, approached from a Bayesian framework that we teach our you know freshmen, right? I mean, what is the false positive rate? What is the false negative rate? And it's surprising me for an expert in in you know in, in calculations of this sort that he just says you know, quotes vague things like greater than 0.1 percent again. Extend an invitation. If you know him out there, please uh, send him my way. Okay, next one. He says that it pr none of it would have survived entry if it were traveling at the speeds reported. And uh, then at least 99.8% and probably greater than six nines 
would have been vaporized in the atmosphere, leaving insignificant quantities to be deposited. That seems like it could be addressed through a simulation. He just says oh, yeah. it's great at probably. I, I'm surprised again by the couching, the, the wiggle words here. Why does he say probably? Well, what do you react yeah, to that? First of all, the number of spheros that we recovered from the meteor path is fully consistent with a tiny fraction of the material surviving with the, most of it being evaporated. And in fact, we wrote a scientific paper that DASH was you know, resisting and pushing back against, where we did a very detailed model with an undergraduate student that worked with me for a summer, and we posted it on the archive, where we calculate the size distribution of the spherules. What we found is similar uh, in the magnitude to what we uh, forecasted based on a detailed physical model where we uh, included the evaporation of material, the size distribution that you expect, uh, solving the energy, momentum, friction equations for those uh, fragments that may form based on all that is known in the scientific literature. So we actually did the, the, the hard work of a few months writing a scientific paper. And we couldn't do better than that, except go to the place and look for any spheros. And so we did the calculation. It's a small fraction of the total mass. And yes, what we found is consistent with that. Okay, so the next one that he claims back is, or they claim, I should say, Jackson and, uh, and um, Tesh, uh, the location of the bolide's path is far more uncertain than you realize. And it's almost certainly miscalculated. The CNOS database reports two locations for the fireball, and they're 55 kilometers apart. If we pick one location, there are still large inherent uncertainties. Uh, sound waves, uh, trying to pinpoint it using sound waves 90 kilometers away. So that, that seems like it could have some uh, validity. What is, what is your response to that? Right. So the Department of Defense provided a region that was seven miles in size. Uh, and there were three flares in the fireball separated by a tenth of a second. This object was moving at 40 kilometers per second. So over a tenth of a second, it would move about four kilometers, you know, like a few miles. And uh, if you have three flares, obviously the explosion was spread across a region that was, uh, you know, of the order of uh, seven miles or so. So that's why the localization could not have been better by the Department of Defense. But we also analyzed data from a seismometer in Manus Island, Papua New Guinea, just to figure out uh, the distance of the explosion based on the fact that the sound waves arrive later than the light. We see that in uh, lightnings, um, you know, the sound uh, the, from the explosion, uh, you know, the, the, the thunder that we hear uh, arrives to us uh, later. And we can tell the distance of the lightning based on the delay. And that, that's what uh, we used um, in figuring out the path of the meteor. But more importantly, we had 26 runs, 26 back and forth scans of the region, and we tried to spread it wide enough so that we, we were not restric restricting our attention. We went even 20 kilometers away from the location of the meteor path in both directions. So we tried to move away from the meteor path as well. And, and the map that we made was based on that. Mm hmm. Okay. So the next claim he makes here, the next point that he makes is, uh, whoops, let me close that. Okay. Uh, getting some reports that people can't see it out there. Put a thumbs up if you're able to see this conversation on YouTube because uh, claims that uh, people aren't able to see it. So leave a thumbs up and leave a thumbs up anyway. And please do subscribe to the channel. As I said, I'm going to have another conversation with Avi, uh, based on Avi's work tomorrow. Uh, for the channel, and that will be a deep dive into the physics of inflation. So Avi does it all. It's not just, it's not only interstellar meteorites. By the way, you went to great lengths, millions of dollars and uh, tens of people to get your meteorite sample. I can give a meteorite sample to any of my guests who happen to win it, or my, my audience members who happen to subscribe at brianking.com. So please do that. Okay, next one. The specific iron ratios are a smoking gun for the spherules or originating in our solar system. The fact that all these samples lie within less than 1%, it's a weird symbol there, by the way, of the terrestrial fractionation line, including Bellow spherules they measured, indicates a greater than four nines and a half probability that all the spherules, including Bellow, are from our solar system. What do you well, say to that? This is an important issue. Um, we uh, had very, uh, so the preprint that they're referring to uh, just considered 10% of the spherules. We just posted the preliminary results. Now we're going through the 90%, the remaining 90%. So the report about the 
Iron isotope ratio was really a very preliminary report in one of the spherules. Uh, and it's true that in principle, if you have different stars exploding in different locations in the Milky Way galaxy, um, you will end up with different isotope ratio for iron because different isotopes of iron originate from different processes uh, like type 1A supernovae or AGB uh, asymptotic giant branch stars. Uh, and we expect variations if this object came from a, a, a far away. And so it's still, what I would say on that is that what was reported in the preprint is very early uh, preliminary analysis of one of the spheres, and we are now engaged in the full analysis. So we will report whatever we find. You know, when my colleague uh, Stein Jacobson comes back to me with results, we just report them. Uh, and here again, I should mention, um, Desh is very proud of claiming that he was pushing against our paper. And in one of the arguments, someone looked back at our map and said, oh, actually, the map does not represent exactly the color bar next to it. And maybe they tweaked the colors. And I went, I mean, that map was produced by my postdoc, Laura Domini. And I went to her and said, and she said, well, it would have been so much more work for me to actually tweak the colors. Uh, you know, that critic actually magnified the map and tried to look for a different color. She said, that would be so much. I just used an off-the-shelf uh, program to plot this map. Um, and so it just shows you the level of negativity that I've never heard. You know, I had more than a thousand scientific papers. I've never heard mm -hmm. someone being motivated to use a magnifying glass, look at the plot and say, oh, you were fudging this because the color scheme does not. And, you know, it's not me. It's a postdoc that came to my group from Stanford, extremely talented, brilliant. She was using the best tools that exist for plotting. And this right. person blames us. So I'm just saying there is a lot of negativity that you don't find in the context of other studies. And they're putting course, the bar so high. Course, you, 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 know, as, you know, as we say in... in in Yiddish, uh, the higher you fly, the easier you are to shoot at. And I think the next, but the next one, Avi, uh, I think this is an own goal, Professor Desh and Jackson. Uh, so you claim, and I'm saying you, uh, Professor Desh, they claim that all of these have to be true, okay? So I'm showing it on the line. To claim an interstellar origin for the spherules they collected, all the links in the chain of logic above would have to withstand scrutiny. And he says none of them do, okay? But now this claim is that the uh, is that one of the spherules is a compound uh, sphere. Three spherules stuck together while molten. That's your claim, Avi, with your team. And you present a back-of-the-envelope calculation that is consistent with the formation of fireball. Just speaking logically, uh, Professor Desh, this is uh, a total logical fallacy, an own goal. The triple spherules, even if the triple spherules are not, it doesn't mean that the entire claim is wrong. I don't know how he could make that assumption. It's like saying, you know, if you don't have a Bernie Sanders uh, sticker on your car, you can't uh, claim that you're a Bernie Sanders supporter. If this is true or false, it doesn't, it doesn't, either refute or uh, or neglect the uh, the base hypothesis, correct? So in other words, even if, let's say he's right here on uh, his point number six, he says the triple spiral S21 almost certainly did not form in a fireball event. Let's say he's right, okay? Which you obviously don't think he's right, but let's say he was right. In that case, uh, that spiral is not a compound spiral. Does that mean that the other ones are not interstellar in origin? I mean, isn't that a logical fallacy, Avi? I completely agree. And well, this one was uh, the biggest spheroid that we analyzed in that preprint and 1.3 millimeters in size. And we looked at it first and it showed this below sphere uh, composition. And then we found it in other spheroids that do not look like it. So um, we're talking about a class of spheroids that has a composition. By the way, you know, it's really analysis that requires a huge amount of effort to get to those measurements. Um, so, um, yeah. I mean, if you just look at the scientific literature on spherules, uh, you would see that nobody uh, analyzed the, uh, you know, so many spherules at the level that we do. We have actually 750 of them. It's a factor of 10 more than the number of spherules in a typical paper on um, meteor sites, you know, and 
Um, we go a factor of 10 more. We, we brought them from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. You know, it's a huge effort. And just ridiculing it and bullying people who engage in that, you know, after such a heroic effort, I think what I would say to that is people who try to terrorize practicing scientists will not get their way. You know, we will continue the scientific work irrespective of how many emails Steve Dash sends to members of my team because they know the truth. They know what we are doing and they know the level of scientific uh, integrity that we're investing in this. The next one, he says, despite your assertions, the Belau patterns have been seen before in cosmic spherules of solar system origin from the Indian Ocean. Again, would this, if true, you always have to ask yourself this question as a scientist, if this is true, would this invalidate the base hypothesis, your hypothesis, the prior hypothesis, that these are extraterrestrial in origin? So he's admitting that they could be, uh, that these things have been seen before, in, uh, uh, but only in our solar system. That doesn't invalidate that they could originate from other objects in the solar system. And they're not even dissimilar to anthropogenic coal ash. I assume he covers that in more depth in the paper. Uh, I'm not sure why that's relevant. I can tell you the coal ash claim was made by someone who wrote a research note, which is basically an unrefereed two-pager saying, oh, I found a paper in the literature where if I look at three elements, they seem to roughly match the element uh, abundances that were in the Belau spheros. That's, that's the claim, based on three elements, comparing them sort of qualitatively, and that's it. It has some tick marks, and it's a research note that is a couple of pages long, not refereed, and then Steve Dash hangs his hat on that. And to that I say, you know, you should be smart in fighting the right battles. You know, that's the, uh, because if you were to uh, be very aggressive on a wrong statement, you know, it just shows you uh, your vulnerability. You know, it exposes your weakness, which is basically to look for anything negative to say. And on this, you know, we compared 60 elements and I have it, you know, we didn't, uh, post it yet because it will be part of the next paper, but we clearly see that it's not collage. He doesn't have access to the materials and he makes this very strong statement, went out to the press, there were a number of reporters who mentioned it. You know, the one thing that reporters do not realize is that in science, it's not about, about it's not like politics where, oh, someone says something, therefore I should present both opinions. It's not like right. that because if one side uh, invested months of work to do the hard scientific work and the other side was sitting on his you know a chair and, and 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 was just expressing an opinion and saying oh maybe it's collage it's not a matter of giving equally <laughs> opportunity to both sides right you need to put some weight no. on the amount of effort right and, and th those people that have access to the materials obviously they can examine the materials we have the data that's the basic point that science is driven by data not by opinion and as much as steve dash you know, does not like the fact that we are doing science, we will continue to do the science. Of course. And I, I view you as an irrepressible force of nature. The last one has some, um, you know, kind of ring of authenticity to me as a question. I want to ask you, because I'm not an expert, but now going back to uh, my meteorite, which again can be yours if you uh, join my, if you win the giveaway that I have in my lesson, I'll send you one for free. I keep promising you. Uh, but here's a meteorite here that uh, I collected the hard way. I went to Amazon and bought. No, I I get them from a special dealer. <laughs> I get them from a special dealer. They're they're prime. They're prime. Um, but this uh, particular sample uh, you know, is the fragment of the Campo de Cielo event, the explosion of a bolide uh, about seven thousand years ago in Argentina, found about uh, 50, uh, in the fifteen hundreds. Uh, the outside of this you know, kind of has these nodules that some of it has thumbprints on bigger sections of it. But I imagine if I if I cut it open, if I fragmented it, um, they would look different inside in that the exterior, this part of it was exposed to the harsh inter, uh, interstellar uh, weather of cosmic rays. And that induces right. what's called spallation. I want you to explain right. spallation in a minute. But wouldn't the skin depth to spallation preclude the interior of this meteorite or the bolide that you saw, wouldn't that be make it harder for cosmic rays to spallate uh, and then make the Balao material? Or am I getting this wrong? I, I think of it in terms of skin depth uh, and penetration. Let me start from um, clarification. The Balao composition originated from the source, not from the travel through interstellar space. So, oh, sorry, he's wrong then. He says, he says that the abundance in these spherules, so he claims that you claim 
the high abundance was produced by spallation of atoms oh. in meteoroids by cosmic gamma rays is indicative no. of cosmic gamma ray irradiation during its passage to interstellar no. so he's no. wrong you don't assume yeah and, I, and and by the way i i mentioned to you this paper that i wrote where i explain it in terms of um, you know, a differentiated planet where um, a molten uh, lava or magma ocean, which he actually mentioned in the previous point, you know, that was responsible for the separation of elements and maintaining those Belau compositions in the crust that was then ejected through the disruption of the planet. So all of that argues that it's at the source, you know, the Belau composition is from the source. It has nothing to do with the travel through interstellar space. Uh, and... Uh, with respect to spallation, this is just a simple process where you have energetic particles, uh, for example, cosmic rays, protons, that are uh, moving at a speed very close to the speed of light, and they collide with the nucleus and breaking it up. Uh, and in fact, uh, there are some uh, elements like beryllium, uh, which are enhanced as a result of energetic particles colliding uh, with with the material um, and uh, like and, and breaking it up, uh, you know, an, a heavier nucleus. And uh, we do see enhancement of beryllium, but that could happen at the source. It doesn't have to be from spallation. So the other context that he puts into it, uh, would any of it survive entry? He does a back of the envelope calculation and says it was about the mass of half a giraffe. Okay, that's an interesting mass measurement, 450 kilograms. And therefore, it's only 48 centimeter sphere in diameter equivalent. Um, now, if it's going at 140 times the speed of sound, he says, and Jackson, uh, the meteorite would have completely vaporized in the atmosphere. Yeah, that's the calculation we did with the uh, uh, summer intern, uh, Emory Tillinghast. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, you can look at that paper and we did the calculation. So indeed, as I said, most of it is vaporized. But we went through, you know, the equations that describe what what's left from that, and that would depend on the material strength. So if you assume a rock, you get one answer, and we derived that in the paper. If you assume that it's made of stainless steel, uh, the way that the Voyager spacecraft was, or any uh, some uh, you know artificial alloy that uh, uh, is related to a, an alien spacecraft, you know, then the answer would be different. So. We know that this object, by the way, exploded in the lower atmosphere and must have had a very high material strength to survive down to there. And the, uh, it was tougher than iron meteorites. So actually, with a student that approached me at a conference in Stanford two weeks ago, um, that was a student of um, material science that he's doing um, uh, a PhD in material science. And he was inspired by my talk about the expedition. So he came to me and said, how can I help? And I said, well, you have a computer code to calculate material strength given a composition uh, of material. And so let's uh, simulate what this meteor was made of and, uh, and, and see if indeed it was of very high material strength. So we're doing this. And to that, I say again, that when you deal with uh, innovation in science, it inspires young people. They come to me and want to work with me. Uh, two of my postdocs, Laura Domini and Richard Cloet, they, they told me that when I called them, to offer them the postdoctoral fellowship, you know, that was the thing that they hoped for their entire career before that, because they had no opportunity to work on these subjects. So these people, these young scholars are inspired by innovation, but then comes a, a, an arrogant senior person and tries to intimidate them. And that's what I find inappropriate. Good. Okay, Avi, I know you've only got about 10 minutes before your next uh, appointment. Um, so we have a couple of questions. And from the audience, and we'll take some. Some are about academia. We can take some of those if you like. Some are about yep. Israel. Uh, we sure. can take some of those if you like. Um, so Anything. the uh, well, the first thing I want to I want to get your reaction to is is um, there have been some reactions online about the implausibility of statements made by David Grush and, and others that there's crashed alien spacecraft and 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 so forth and and the the argument seems to go along these lines and i want to get your reaction logically to them one of them is that these aliens are so sophisticated they can make a spacecraft that can travel interstellar distances but then they crash on earth <laughs> um I want to point out, I'm a pilot. I fly little tiny Cessnas around, okay? Uh, I'm not like uh, uh, my past guest, uh, you know, or, or, you know when, I, when I had on our, our, uh, Hazard Lee or I had on Ryan Graves. And these are great heroes. These are military fighter pilots of the highest order. I'm nothing like that. But I'll point out that if you look at the FAA's accident database, 
Where do you think the most outlying probability is for a crash of a commercial pilot, piloted plane, not an amateur like me, a commercially trained pilot, somebody flying in which of the phases of flight, takeoff, cruise flight, or landing? Which are the most likely to cause an accident? What would you say, Avi? Probably landing. Landing. It's like six to eight times more uh, uh, perilous. In other words, these accidents tend to occur during the landing phase. So I, I like to point that out to people that snicker and sneer, including people like Brian Green, who I had on last week on the podcast, who I, I did a wonderful interview with him in person at Columbia uh, right before there was a, a, a huge uh, protest against Israel. But uh, but anyway, there. Uh, so I just like to point that out. Even human pilots crash more during landing. So and military pilots as well. So anyway, I, I think that's kind of a ridiculous argument. Well, it but also dep ask it, it, it depends how many things are flying. You know, if there are lots of them, then uh, the chance, even a small chance, would lead to some uh, evidence uh, over decades of time. And you know, it's it's all about evidence. Uh, you know, people try to have an opinion. That's a very easy thing. The difficult part is collecting the evidence. If the government has, so do you want my opinion on, on Grush? Uh, actually, yeah, I wrote uh, last night when I returned at 10 p.m. from uh, Washington, D.C., I wrote uh, an essay with the title, and you can find it on medium.com, with the title of New Physics or Misinformation. You know, that is the dilemma that we face when listening to the testimony of Grush in front of the House of Representatives. Now, you know, it's completely plausible that uh, he is sincere, that he just reports what he heard from 40 people who told him about things that happen. And then uh, he exaggerated the significance of those and misinterpreted some. And uh, as a result, I mean, he didn't witness it himself. He didn't see the materials. Uh, yet he claimed that there are there are there is material in biologics of uh, in crash sites. And you know, as a scientist, I must say that this is not convincing. I need to see the evidence. I, if the government has this, I really want to to know about it to see it. That's part of the Schumer Amendment, the UAP Disclosure Act. If there is something to it, but there is another possibility that. Um, there is a campaign of misinformation that uh, some people want the public to believe in things that are not real. And we know that in politics, you could have an agenda of that nature just to mislead the adversarial countries or to um, make the public uh, distrust anything they hear so that if there are programs to develop new technologies that the US government is funding through the military industrial complex, uh, you know, that it will be lost in the noise. If someone sees something, they will not talk about it because of the stigma associated with very advanced technologies, perhaps coming extraterrestrially. So that could mm. be uh, in the background. Now, this Schumer Amendment is being resisted by some people uh, in Congress. And the fundamental question is whether the, it, this resistance is superficial. They just do it for political reasons. I mean, even though it was proposed by the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, uh, it was bipartisan, mm -hmm. there was support for it in the Senate. But it's also possible that there are people who know what the government has. Uh, they deal with highly classified information and they know that there is nothing uh, to substantiate Grasha's claims. So they go to the chairs of those subcommittees and tell them, look, you know, this would endanger national security, if there will be a committee that will oversee what the government does and ask for all the information, some of it may leak to our adversaries and this is not good for the country. So, so then there would be opposition, but you will not really understand why there is this opposition. Of course, there are people who claim there is a conspiracy, the government is trying to hide. I personally, I tend to believe the government is incompetent to hide something of that nature for so long, especially if it involves biological materials. Yeah, it would be a conspiracy, you know, that would dwarf the Kennedy assassination and conspiracy. Right. Okay, I have to ask you this question. It's from a listener on, on YouTube, Hervig, Hervig de Wild. So he's asking, he's saying, basically, we don't even know if what he grabbed off the bottom of the sea is anything to do with a bolide, yet you, Avi, are jumping to alien technology. Is that what you're saying? Is this alien no, technology? No, I'm, I'm claiming it. I'm not claiming it. I'm saying it's a possibility. Now, let me explain where I'm coming from. You know, just like you, Brian, I worked early on in, on uh, cosmology where, for example, we don't know what the dark matter is. That's the 83% of the matter in the universe. We have never witnessed it in the solar system. So in that culture that I worked on for decades, 
people were proposing different types of dark matter. It could be primordial black holes. It could be a very light particle like the axion. It could be massive particles like weakly interacting massive particles. Uh, it could be all kinds of things. And when you were to propose observational signatures of a hypothesis, everyone would cheer because it allows experimentalists to pursue and rule out possibilities. So it's a, an integral part of doing science to propose possibilities so that we can rule them out and figure out the truth eventually, because one of them might be true. So what the way I approach this subject is if I see an object, a meteor that was moving faster than 95% of the stars, that had material strength, tougher than iron meteorites, I say we should leave on the table the possibility that it is a Voyager-like meteor. If Voyager were to collide with a planet like the Earth, it would burn up in the atmosphere of that planet as a very tough object because it's made of an artificial alloy. And it would move faster than usual because it was propelled by a chemical rocket. So that's all. I'm saying, let's leave it on the table. And then the public gets extremely excited. And then some reporters report about it as if I'm saying that. And then my colleagues are arguing that I'm saying that. But I never said that. Listen to my podcast interviews, see what I write on medium.com, and you will never see that as me arguing that it must be an alien spacecraft. I'm just saying this is a possibility we should leave on the table, just like in the case of dark matter. You would never dismiss weakly interacting massive particles as a possibility because you don't know the answer. Okay. Uh, we have one question from a friend of the show, Ross, at uh, Event Horizon. He wants to know who were you meeting with yesterday in Washington, D.C.? Oh, there were a number of people. Um, some of them were in Congress. Some of them were in the Senate. What I should say, and some of them were in the Department of Defense. What I should say is, uh, I was amazed. Like, come, at least two of these meetings, uh, 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 these are high-level officials. Okay, and, uh, they would come to me and say, "I, I, I follow what you do, and I, I uh, really admire your work, and I never imagined." that I will meet with you. Now, <laughs> I could never imagine that they would say that because these are people, you know, within, uh, at high level, you know, within the US government that, uh, so apparently they do appreciate the innovation that I'm pursuing. And uh, I never take it for granted because, you know, overall, I'm just driven by curiosity. That's, that's all that motivates me. I'm just a curious farm boy trying to figure out the world, given the opportunity to be a scientist so that, you know, I can answer questions myself. I don't need to listen to Grash telling me what lies outside the solar system, really. I mean, Grash, when he expressed himself as, as if what he's talking about is a result of extra dimensions or the holographic principle, you know, this didn't sound... Pro I, I know these uh, ideas in the context of string theory. We have no experimental clue to support them. Uh, they're completely speculative, unrelated to any phenomena at low energies, low space-time curvature that we have near Earth. So that sounded like far-fetched to me. Uh, but, you know, I, I just believe that evidence will guide us to the answer. And we should collect it rather than say, it's an extraordinary claim. And therefore, since there is no evidence, we should just shy away from it, which is pretty much what all the critics are saying. I say, you know, we need to seek the evidence. So extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary effort. It's a lot of hard work, and that should be celebrated. The hard work of science, where we don't know the answer in advance, we don't have an opinion, we just work on collecting the evidence. So what I feel is that instead of that being celebrated within academia, you know, the hard work, I see people like Dash ridiculing it, pushing back. However, within government, people are supportive, you know, at every, I always receive positive feedback. Within the public, people are extremely supportive. So once again, we come back to where we started. Something is wrong in academia. Yeah, indeed we do. And I guess uh, the question I have for you is, uh, where, do, where do you go from here in both the uh, search for these, these uh, materials' origins, first and foremost? And then where, where, where do you go in academia? Is there, is there a home? Is there a, a place for ideas uh, that can survive the kind of onslaught that we've witnessed in the last two months? It's just, it's just been 
absolutely shocking. I mean, some people are saying, oh, the donors just have to. And I was I was asked by, you know, people, well, what if the Jewish donors just stop donating? I, I found that very insulting. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's right. a very um, offensive trope that Jews are mainly interested in how their money is used. And if, if we don't have a, a, a happy state of affairs, then the Jewish banking bankers and the uh, and the pro elders of Zion will just cancel. Let me explain yeah. one uh, very simple fact. I was at Harvard University for 30 years, okay? 30 years. Claudine Gay came to Harvard University eight years ago, okay? She doesn't own Harvard University, even though she's the president. I feel that this is my home, and if someone comes to my home and violates my principles, I don't leave home because of that. I will try to change the intellectual climate we live in for the better. Okay, that's my answer. But with respect to the future of um, uh, the, the Meteor <laughs> research, uh, we are planning an expedition. It will probably cost um, uh, a few, uh, at least uh, twice or three times the previous uh, cost, uh, probably around four to five million dollars, because we need a much more sophisticated equipment to find bigger fragments of the object and you know once we find them we can easily tell the difference between a rock and an artificial technological gadget because a gadget could have buttons on it and i actually asked students in my class whether um, if we find a gadget whether we should press any button on it and half of them said please don't because it will affect all of us half of them said Yes, please do, because it might be chat GPT 100. And then one student asked me, what would you do, Professor Loeb? And I said, I will bring it to a laboratory and examine it. No worries. And actually, after we examine it, I promised Paula Antonelli, in the spirit of love, the aliens, to put it on exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art, because for us, it will be modern art to just witness that. Very good, Avi. Well, this has been a treat, but I, I really salute you for your courage and and also just the intellectual uh, striving for truth that I always associate with you. And you've got millions of fans around the world. You're always welcome here on the podcast. We're overdue for a dinner together, for a lunch, for whatever we can arrange, uh, hopefully on the uh, on the East Coast or the West Coast. Maybe you'll come out here in the winter and uh, you'll you'll get away from it all in Southern. Thank you uh, so much. Sunny. And if I could just mention uh, my mantra is maintain your childhood curiosity and never pretend to be the adult in the room. That's the first um, thing that I advise young people. But the second is, you know, let's let's work together rather than hate each other you know that it's the source of all the problems we discussed starting from the middle east going through what happens on campuses and ending up with scientific discourse let's just be positive rather than negative and uh, this will solve all of these problems yes i agree science is our uh, greatest hope or possibly our greatest source of uh, probability for demise I, I hope we'll choose the wise path avi loeb <laughs> we have your website uh, avi dash loeb uh, l-o-e-b uh, dot medium dot com it's on the screen and uh, avi thank you so much stay safe over there i worry about your safety on campus to be honest with you. no worries I, I, my skin is now uh, made of titanium after i survived the attacks by the not belau it should be made of belau you should have a belau <laughs> suit uh, yeah no. all right litro litro shalom avi thank you <laughs>